Welcome back to The Evolution again. My name is Jeff Bayless. I uh, started this project of a podcast uh, in an effort to share some remarkable stories of people that have had to overcome some adversity, um, much like I have, uh, and share some resources uh, along the way. Uh, today's uh, guest is, I'm very honored to have Jeff Jeannie Craig, a retired uh, captain in the Navy, a naval aviator. And uh, just he's got a really remarkable story that I'm very excited to uh, be able to facilitate sharing with you. Uh, so hello, sir. Thank you. And I uh, appreciate your time this evening. Hey, Jeff. You got it, man. Um, happy to be here. So uh, Jenny Craig, uh, tell us that story. How, how did that come to be? Or really, if you could explain for people that aren't military, how, did, how does a, a pilot get a call sign? Well, yeah, absolutely. In the Navy, at least... Uh, Typically, it surrounds uh, something stupid that you do. Um, mine was a little bit different story. I was uh, in Meridian, Mississippi, going through pilot training. One of my instructors uh, saw my last name and just happened to call me Jenny. Uh, I didn't even know that he was talking to me at the time. And uh, it's kind of funny because, um, I, you know, that was 1994, 95 time frame, and I just I guess I never did anything stupid enough to warrant a new call sign. So I was Jenny throughout my uh, naval aviation career. Um, now, I'll, I'll tell you, I still answer to it. There are a lot of folks that obviously that I still know that are active duty and that are retired. And, you know, people still call me Jenny. So I still answer to it. It's kind of funny in the business that I'm in now. And nobody understands uh, um, that that's actually another name of mine. And, of course, you know, everybody knows the Jenny Craig uh, weight loss and that kind of stuff. But. Typically, it's around something that you do that's, uh, that's stupid or out of line. Uh, we had a guy in the, in the squadron, my first squadron, his call sign was Crunch because he had taxied one jet into another on the flight deck of the carrier. And so I guess it's fortunate um, that I never did anything stupid enough to warrant something different. <laughs> something, so, something worse than being called a woman's <laughs> name every day, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, you were... Can you? T I know your your dad was military, right? Is that kind of what drove you into the Navy, or can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and history and how you uh, became this, you know, awesome naval aviator and commanding officer, and just kind of how you? What was your roadmap there? Yeah, yeah, sure. I don't know, awesome or uh, whatever, but you know, the I grew up in a military family. My dad was in the Air Force. He was a career Air Force officer, retired as a. Air Force Colonel after 27 and a half years of service. He was a pilot as well. Okay. Um, flew, flew during Vietnam. Um, and of course I was probably too young to remember much about that. But as I got older, uh, I got some perspective, not only from him, but researching a little bit of his history. And he flew uh, RF 101s. He flew B 52s uh, during arc light uh, missions in Vietnam. And then um, later on, uh, he retired, like I said, in about the 1991 time frame, right as Desert Storm was finishing off. Um, Desert Shield, Desert Storm was finishing up. And uh, yeah. I was at the Naval Academy at the time. And so, you know, it was kind of that um, upbringing. We moved around a lot as a kid. I lived in, um, I was born in Columbus, Ohio. We were at Wordsmith Air Force Base, which is, I think, now a National Guard base um, up in Michigan, we were at Rickenbacker in Columbus. We were at uh, Wright-Patterson in Dayton, Ohio. We were at Castle Air Force Base near Sacramento. We were at Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida. 
So, you know, I, I grew up as a kid in the military, um, kind of realizing, I think, pretty early on that I wanted to do the same thing that my dad did. I, I remember one of my earliest memories about flying was we went to a, an air show at Castle Air Force Base. And uh, my dad, having been a B-52 pilot previously, um, I guess walked up to the crew and we were out there at the air show. And, of course, I'd never seen anything so big in my life. I was probably, I don't know, I was probably five, seven, maybe. Yeah, and uh, and he uh, finagled something with the crew so that we got up into the airplane, and I got a chance to sit um, in the B fifty two when I was a young kid. And of course, any young kid will tell you, any adult will tell you that those kind of formative experiences go on to, you know, do something. So I knew I wanted to be a pilot from a really young age. I I didn't know what kind of a pilot I wanted to be. You know, I didn't know if it was a commercial pilot or a military pilot, but as I got uh, into high school and, and uh, you know, studying hard, playing baseball, doing those kinds of things, um, I recognized that the service academies may be a potential. So I applied to the Air Force Academy and I applied to the Naval Academy. Um, I got into both, but I ultimately chose to go to the Naval Academy. I graduated uh, with the class in 1992. And um, so subsequently – went on to flight school down in Pensacola, Florida, and in uh, Meridian, Mississippi, got winged in 1995. There were some issues during that time frame with uh, the age of the airplanes and some of the maintenance uh, that was being done on the airplane, so it took me a while to get winged, but it was kind of funny because I got, I got frocked to lieutenant, which is when they still frock folks to lieutenant. I don't think they do it anymore. Um, the same day I got my wings, and so oh, it's nice. kind of funny, funny now that I'm, go- I'm going to the fleet as an O three, uh, wearing the rank of Lieutenant, but I've never flown in a fleet squadron. So it took me that long to kind of get through that pipeline, but yeah, it was all a, an inspiration, um, built by my dad. You know, I admired his career and what he had done, his career service, and I wanted to follow in his footsteps. And so I looked for a way to do that. I found the Naval Academy and then, um, subsequently went on, went on to do, you know, 26 and a half years in the Navy. And so, yeah, I was, uh, we, I was putting some numbers together a couple months ago. I was looking at his logbook and my logbook together. I think, you know, 54 years of total service, uh, 17,000 flight hours total between the two of us. Wow. And then, and then over 700 combat missions all the way from Vietnam to uh, over Iraq, over Afghanistan, and over Libya. So kind of funny when you have, you know, he's he passed in 2012, which is, um, you know, another part of my story we can get into a little bit later if you want to, but, sure. um, he's, you know, he's always been kind of that, that guy riding shotgun. Maybe I'm chasing a ghost. Maybe I'm, uh, just trying to do as well as he did, but, uh, you know, yeah, I, I couldn't believe when I looked at his logbook and I looked at my logbook, you know, of course with 17,000 hours total, I had about 3000 hours total. Yeah. So that tells you, tells you, you know, he had about 14,000 hours of flight time. And it was mostly in, you know, big wing airplanes. Uh, he originally started off in uh, EB-47s, which was an electronic warfare aircraft, which is, you know, of course, that's where I did all of my flying. So when I um, got Prowlers coming out of getting winged in 1995, my dad, you, you, he couldn't be more ecstatic. He was like, hey, that's exactly what I did, you know. So yeah. he was, uh, I'd like to think that he was uh, very proud, but certainly I had big shoes to fill and, uh I was lucky enough to stood on the to have stood on the shoulders of a an awesome man. So, 
Well, that's, that's all very impressive. And I, I can relate to that as well. You know, just a lot of men do try to, you know, fill their dad's shoes. Uh, you know, my father and grandfather were both uh, both mates in the Navy. So when I came in, I mean, was they weren't uh, as impressive in their naval careers, you know, your father was in his uh, Air Force career. But uh, still, it's it's very, you know, very common and in, in, in that that definitely resonates with a lot of people, I'm sure, because a lot of us are, you know, trying to trying to make our daddies proud, you know? Yeah. And, and I'm, and I'm sure you did, sir. I'm really sure you did. Uh, <laughs> yeah. He'll, he'll, he'll tell you the same. I, I, he would tell you the same, I'm sure, but it was, you know, it was always kind of funny because I think it was kind of a silent pride, right? He wouldn't let me let on to me that unless I was going through a, you know, a tough time or something like that, he wouldn't, I know he was proud, but he was always, um, you know, he's like, Hey, you know what? You can do it. You know, it's not, he'd always kind of downplay it, I think for me, but then yeah. with others, with others, I'm sure he was uh, a different person. Talking <laughs> well, that's about that, that, uh, that's that old school stoic mentality, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, and then you went on to command, uh, some squadrons right after your, um, you know, your, your flying time couldn't, you can't fly forever as a pilot in the Navy, right? Eventually you get into leadership positions where you're, you're going to have to change that pipeline. So if you can kind of give people that maybe don't understand uh, military and definitely like a CO pipeline or, you know, cause you had an interesting, you know, going from flying to, you know, an aircraft carrier as an executive officer to the CO, like how did that kind of, Oh, and your nuclear train too, as well. So, um, you know, kind of describe that for us because a lot of people don't understand that process. And actually you might teach me something about how all that works. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, like I said, graduated in 92, got winged in 95. I went to my first squadron, uh, out of Whidbey Island, Washington. Um, I, well, I trained through the FRS, the fleet replacement squadron, VAQ 129 up at Whidbey Island, mm-hmm. got, uh, got finished there and then went on to my first squadron, VAQ 139 at Whidbey. We were attached to Air Wing 14 on board USS Abraham Lincoln did a deployment in support of Operation Southern Watch over Iraq, you know, enforcing the no-fly zone um, over Iraq. And then came back, um, spent about three years there. And then uh, when I was up for shore duty orders, I went to the Electronic Attack Weapons School and was a weapons school instructor pilot, um, which was a great opportunity to continue flying and continue to develop tactically. Uh, I went from there to, um, since I was, again, I, when I got winged, I was already a lieutenant. Um, I got promoted to lieutenant commander, and they had selected me for department head. Right. And I, I went back to uh, VAQ-137, the Rooks, out of Whidbey Island, and we deployed on board USS Enterprise to uh, the Arabian Gulf initially. And then, uh, interestingly, uh, we deployed the squadron off of Enterprise into Bagram Air Base in Afghanistan, part of the first Prowler squadron on the ground in Afghanistan. And that went on from that point to 2002 timeframe mm-hmm. uh, all the way t- until probably 2010, 2011 timeframe. So we were a part of the very first contingent that did that. Um, came back. So anyway, I was in 04. I joined the squadron initially as what we call the training officer, which is usually a weapons and tactics officer that's qualified, a junior 04 that is not going to be a department head. But 
uh, things were such in the squadron that I just stayed on there and would do explain my department to, head time. Explain to people what a department head is that don't understand that. that well, term, yeah, please. absolutely. It's, it's a, uh, so at, at the 04 level, at the lieutenant commander level, it's a kind of a middle management position in the squadron. So you're not new to the squadron. You, you know enough about what's going on, uh, how things are running, how to lead um, sailors. And you're still, you, you've got enough tactical proficiency in the airplane, enough flight time that you're a fairly senior pilot. You're not the CEO or the XO, but you're right below those guys getting ready still, to. Still operational and, you know, still flying and stuff like that though, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we deployed and I was flying over um, Bagram, Afghanistan and doing a lot of missions over Afghanistan. Uh, we came back from that deployment. I went on to take a staff job in the Pentagon and the uh, National Military Command Center in the, on the joint staff and the J-3, um, working in space and missile defense operations. So the J-3 is current operations. Operations, well, yeah. And operations. I mean, they're, they're doing future operations as well, but it's primarily operations. So I, was, I joined as a space and missile defense uh, action officer, so I worked primarily GPS constellation issues, so way out of my realm of expertise, but I was now working on space systems. And then, and they uh, didn't military... offer you a job in the Space Force? <laughs> no, no, well, believe me, they, they had, I don't even think they thought about the Space Force at that point. No, that, I was just kidding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So it, it, I did that for a little bit, and then I went on to um, – I served as the daily briefer to the J3. So I would work nights. I would develop a comprehensive picture of what was going on around the world overnight to be able to brief the J3, who was a three-star Marine Corps Lieutenant General. And then he would then go uh, to brief the chairman of the Joint Chiefs on the operations from overnight. So I had a lot of great um, perspective from a lot of very senior leadership um, very early in my career, which was, was awesome because it was kind of interesting. The things that I thought were important, uh, paled in comparison to the things that they thought were important. So I very quickly realigned what I thought was important with what they thought was important. And we got, uh, I got that job, uh, squared away pretty well. I did, a, I did well enough in that job that I got, uh, hired on as a, an executive assistant, which is kind of the, um, office manager slash aide to, uh, an air force general. And I worked as, as his uh, exec for about a year before I screened for command, aviation squadron command, and uh, I left the joint staff in D.C. So I got picked up for command of a squadron at Whidbey Island. I showed yep. up at Whidbey, Whidbey Island um, back in the Prowler community. And originally, um, I was going to go to VAQ-132 as the XO and then the CO because in the aviation model, and I think in the surface model now, Kind of the fleet XO. up. Yeah, yeah, XO fleets up to be the skipper. So you spend about 18 months as the XO, 15 months to 18 months as the XO, and then you spend 15 to 18 months as the skipper. Um, so I got selected to be, go to VAQ-132. Um, while I was going through training in the Prowler, uh, we were also getting ready to introduce the Growler, the EA-18, and this is the 2009 timeframe. And so uh, a decision was made, and I, don't, I had no input on it, but they said, hey, you're not going to go to 132 anymore. You're going to go be the XO of VAQ-129, the Fleet Replacement Squadron. So okay. um, I went to VAQ-129. I was the XO of VAQ-129 as we introduced the EA-18 to the fleet. So it, it wasn't its initial operating capability, but it was. It showed up on the flight line at Whidbey Island. And we, as VAQ-129 then, 
were responsible for accepting all the aircraft, training the main maintainers, the maintenance personnel on the airplane, and then also getting all the air crew qualified, not only through uh, the basic flying of the aircraft, but in the air-to-air syllabus, in the carrier qualification syllabus, uh, you name it. So I did that for about a year as the XO, and then I ended up going to VAQ-132 anyway. I was the XO of VAQ-132, and then they transitioned to the EA-18. They were the very first squadron to transition from the Prowler to the Growler. Right. And as we finished up that transition, I took command of the squadron in uh, the July 2010 timeframe, and we deployed with that aircraft for the first time in November of, of 2010 uh, straight into Iraq. So originally we were a part of Carrier Air Wing 17, um, but the CNO at the time um, had said, no, we're not going to attach you to a Carrier Air Wing because of the lengthy cycle time for you to be able to deploy. We're going to go ahead and call you an expeditionary squadron, and you're going to deploy as quickly as possible. And so I took over the squadron, like I said, in July, and we deployed in November to Iraq. And this is November of 2010 timeframe. If you yeah. recall, um, about, I don't know, I guess it was probably November or December timeframe, the Arab Spring kicks off in the Middle East yes. of 2010. And then in early 2011 timeframe, um, I was, we were in Iraq. We were flying. We'd been there for about four months. Um, I got a phone call on a secure line and we were watching a lot of the uh, news coverage of the Arab spring and what was going on in Egypt and different places. Right. And I got, I got a phone call in my office in Iraq and it was uh, part of the CENTCOM staff saying you need to be prepared to redeploy in 12 hours and um, pack up your stuff. We don't know where you're going yet, but you're going. And right. So we were, we were at the time, I think the AQ-141 had deployed on board uh, USS uh, George Herman Walker Bush. And so they were, I think, in the Mediterranean. So we kind of figured that 141 was going to be able to respond to whatever was going on. And we didn't think we were going to get redeployed. But, of course, this phone call comes in. And we had been doing a um, relatively routine mission in Iraq. Um, that was at the end of what was called Operation New Dawn. So um, all of the Southern Watch and uh, Iraqi Freedom had already gone on. And now we're on the kind of in the final phases and the withdrawal process from Iraq. And so I won't say it was Groundhog Day, but it was somewhat similar. And then all of a sudden I get a phone call that says, hey, you're going to fly. We don't know where we're going to base you yet, but you need to be packed up and ready to go. So yeah. we packed up, packed up the entire squadron. We ended up flying from al-Assad, Iraq, the middle of central Iraq, to Aviano, Italy. Mm -hmm. And we had about six hours on the ground, and we turned around and flew from Aviano all the way down to Libya, supporting the very first night of strikes with uh, B2, arriving with B-2s from Whiteman Air Force Base in Missouri. So we linked up with those guys over the Mediterranean, and we, we uh, actually – so you can imagine in those 36 hours between getting that call, packing up the squad, oh, yeah. flying, flying all the aircraft into from Al-Assad into uh, northern Italy. And then I was uh, the flight lead for the first mission supporting those guys, the B-2s. It was uh, a crazy time period, but that's what naval aviation does. It's all about the expeditionary mindset, all about getting the job done. So it was pretty cool to have come back 
and then realized what an impact we were able to, you know, in just a very short amount of time, right? Because 2009, the aircraft is uh, introduced to the Navy. 2010, we deploy with it, and we're in a, on a combat deployment um, now right. shooting, miss, shooting missiles, um, you know, making sure that we're jamming uh, a bunch of different systems that were there in Libya and making sure that we were protecting a bunch of strike aircraft from not only the U.S., which was kind of the first part of it, which was Operation Odyssey Dawn, which was the first two weeks of the campaign in Libya, but then uh, supporting the NATO effort as well, which was Operation Unified Protector, which was a little bit later on. And we stayed, so we stayed in Aviano until um, summertime of 2012. Yeah. And then we were relieved <clears throat> on station by another uh, Prowler squadron because, again, we were the only Growler squadron at that point. And then uh, once we were relieved, I flew back. We flew back to Whidbey um, via a Translant all the way from uh, Italy. We stopped a couple times. And then a week later, um, I took over as the skipper, the, the commanding officer of the fleet replacement squadron. So I'm the only guy in, I, th- I think, in the history of the Prowler community that's been the XO and the CO of the fleet replacement squadron. So that's um, awesome. Yeah. So I went back. I was a skipper of the fleet replacement squadron for about a year. We transitioned three squadrons from the Prowler to the Growler while I was there. Uh, that was our big mission, obviously, during that time frame. But we were also still maintaining combat-ready crews and maintenance personnel for the Prowler during that time frame. So I had a squadron where I had two different type model series aircraft, the EA-18G and the EA-6B. And then I had about 1,000 people with active duty Navy, Marine Corps, Air Force, civilian maintenance, um, you name it. So it was really a, an exercise in large-scale leadership um, to be able to make sure that we got those, th- those folks through on time and, and out the door to be able to deploy uh, later on. So while I was at Whidbey as a commanding officer there, I got selected for major command, which is always a, a big um, bonus, and, and that was in October of 2000. 12 time frame. Right. Um, I got selected for major command, uh, which was in, in two different pipelines typically for aviators. One is major command for an air wing commander. So you're in charge of the entire aviation contingent on board an aircraft carrier. The other is what's called a nuclear power pipeline, which right. is a pipeline for you to get uh, trained in nuclear power. You go take over as an exo of an aircraft carrier for a couple of years. You go do a deep draft, um, like a large amphibious ship, uh, command tour for a year to 18 months and then you go uh, potentially show up as the uh, skipper of an aircraft carrier and you do that until about the 30-year point and hopefully you've met all the wickets at that point to be uh, looked at pretty significantly for a flag officer so so uh, anyway I, I went on to nuclear power school in Charleston uh, South Carolina then I went up to Saratoga Springs New York went through uh, what's called prototype which is hands-on to an actual nuclear reactor operating nuclear reactor well, we, down to de- we had Go this ahead. conversation. I don't want to gloss over this. We had this conversation one time uh, driving uh, where I was conning the ship. Uh, and yeah. I remember you talking to me about it when you were standing uh, command duty officer. And for those that don't know, on the aircraft carrier, uh, that, and whenever there's flight operations, there has to be someone very senior and qualified uh, to manage uh, the flight operations from the bridge. So my job is just to navigate the ship but uh jenny's job was to make sure that everything uh one that i was doing was squared away but also that everything on the flight deck was 
uh, gelling. But I remember when we were having a conversation, you you had mentioned one time uh, like the attrition rate in those schools. And I think that that's worth mentioning if you have that fact on hand, you know, like how hard it is to get through those schools, you know. Uh, well, yeah, I mean, I think that for for young guys coming out of uh, technical programs, universities, wherever, um, it's probably not as as hard as it could be. I think, I think graduation rate is actually fairly high, but I, you know, maybe 80% ish, um, of folks that go end up, uh, getting through when they're younger. But the interesting part is, is that from my perspective, when the Navy selected me to go through nuclear power, there were only six guys. And they typically, the Navy pulls about six aviators per year to go through nuclear power school. Right. And so, but you know, I hadn't been in school for 20 years. And so <laughs> yeah. the, the, you know, all of a sudden on day one, you're being you're like, uh, like, you're like Rodney Dangerfield back to school. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was crazy. You know, you're being fed calculus equations and uh, thermodynamics and electrical engineering and reactor physics and, you know, you name it. And of course I was an engineer when I was at the Naval Academy. So I thought that I was fairly well prepared, but you know, that those, those skills um, take a while to come back. And so sure. it was pretty, pretty, uh, pretty humbling to think that I knew what I was doing and then to be, uh, told that I needed to spend a little extra time studying. So, and so you, you made it through both of those schools. Um, I did. And yeah, then I got through and then you already knew you were coming to the Theodore Roosevelt. Is that right? I mean, you kind of, do you know when you get out of school, like this is the ship I'm going to get or. Yeah. They give you the, when you're selected for nuclear power, once you kind of get into the pipeline fairly quickly thereafter, they, they slate you via what I think they still call it the waterfall, but um, they slate you to a ship. And so you have an idea uh, pretty early on in your nuclear training, what carrier you're going to go to as the XO. Right. And the whole point, the whole point is not only are they going to give you the theoretical and the practical experience as you're going through training, but then you're going to get two months to, excuse me, two years on an actual aircraft carrier managing um, what all those parts are about, including being proficient in reactor operations. Right. You have a, re you have a, a senior officer who's also the reactor officer, but you know, you're nuclear trained, the captain's nuclear trained, the reactor officer is nuclear trained. And you guys are really the crux of the leadership that makes sure that we're doing the nuclear power business the correct way. I don't think I mentioned this before, but do you know who my Commodore, my boss is right now? Yeah. I, I, I actually do know who it is. It's yeah. uh, it was our reactor officer on board TR. That's right. Yeah. I don't know if he'd feel comfortable me saying his name, but yeah. So it's really great working for him. He's a, he's a great leader. I, I really got lucky with that gig there, but anyway, um, so report to TR. Do you want to talk a little bit about your experience there and our deployment or, you know, how yeah, you, absolutely. How, how did you, uh, how did you see that tour for you? Uh, I loved it. Uh, it's probably yeah. my favorite tour, tour in the Navy. I, I'll tell you, I was somewhat of a reluctant, uh, nuclear power select because I really wanted to continue flying. Um, I probably could have continued flying a little bit, but I still wouldn't have flown as much as had I gone into the carrier air wing pipeline. Right. Um, since I was an expeditionary uh, CO and I wasn't a carrier based squadron CO, uh, I knew that my odds of picking up an air wing uh, command opportunity were probably slim. And so, since, you know, the, Sorry, let me, Go ahead. so what that means for people that don't understand, is like instead of being ship-based right on an aircraft carrier, you were expeditionary, meaning like you were at a, at a base and making strikes and doing stuff in country, right? Is that? Right, right. Yeah. When we deployed, we didn't deploy on an aircraft carrier. We flew right. all the way into Iraq and we were land-based in Iraq, right. land-based in uh, Aviano, Italy, flying 
from those spots instead of flying from the deck of an aircraft. Exactly. Door. So I mean, I knew what you I, meant, but some people yeah, don't. Yeah. So you're right. You're right. I have to uh, be careful because I, I know that all the folks that I work with currently have no idea what I'm talking about. So, um, <laughs> yeah. It's a hard <laughs> transition, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. And you can still tell it's, it's fairly fresh, but um, so yeah. So uh, probably my best tour in the Navy. And the reason why is because not only was it technical, but you're now dealing with uh, a very large leadership crucible right it's it's you know on a daily on a daily basis uh i didn't know what i was what was going to happen on board the ship i mean we had ranging from um flight ops to driving the ship to uh winds changing so that we now have to maneuver the ship very quickly to be able to recover aircraft to medical emergencies to engineering drills to general quarters to you name it you know when you have it's a floating city yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was, I was working directly for the captain, obviously. And with 18 different direct reports, uh, which managed all of the departments on board the ship and those departments comprising about 3,500 folks. Um, and then when the air wing came on board, we went up upwards of 4,500 folks to, to 5,000 folks. That's right. It is, it is a, I mean, it's, you know, the daily challenges, um, were, you know, nothing was routine. I mean, there was a routine to try to make sure that you were getting things done, but it was interesting because it, it didn't matter day to day. It's uh, a plan. Were, it's a plan to deviate from. <laughs> yeah. There yeah. were plenty of things that, that uh, went different ways than you expected. And you, then you had to react, but it was a great, great tour, great experience because I think I learned a lot about large organization leadership, being yeah. able to influence how people look at things, culture, um, all those kinds of things that would have put me in great stead then to go on and potentially be a carrier skipper. And so I'd, I'd like to share something with you. Um, and I'm sure I've told you either in text or in our, our pre-talk, but I definitely didn't tell you this at the time. And my experience uh, with you on the carrier uh, and, you know, this, this podcast is all about vulnerability and this, this particular pod is not about me. It's about you, but I think our experience together it's worth mentioning because uh, it is a reflection on your character and your leadership. Uh, you know, it's no secret. I got a DUI as an officer on the ship and that was a career killer. Um, and subsequent, subsequently, you know, I reverted back to chief and I'm getting forced retired. Uh, I will keep my officer retirement and stuff like that. But at the time, you know, I, I was in a pressure cooker of stress. Uh, you know, I'd made a poor decision uh, and I've owned up to that. Uh, but a lot of a lot of people kind of um, definitely changed the way they communicated with me, the way they interacted with me, if they even interacted with me at all. Uh, it, it isn't important to say who those people were, but what I do want to say about you uh, is that you didn't necessarily take it easy on me, but you definitely took the time to mentor me and talk to me and uh you know you brought me in to your cabin and we had conversations and uh you know on the bridge we had conversations you never treated me like I was a a, a lesser human being because I made a mistake uh and so you know I really appreciate that uh I don't know if I was able at the time to express that to you or you know if I had worked through it well enough to tell you how much I appreciated that at the time um, but I do appreciate, and that, that's a good example for anybody, you know, just because somebody makes a mistake or is going through something, 
you know, it doesn't mean you don't have to treat them <laughs> like a, like a human being, you know? And Well, yeah. I mean, I think that, and it's, it's interesting. I think that, um, you know, I appreciate that. I, I, I certainly understood the kind of stress that you were going under, that you were under and the scrutiny certainly. And I think that, you know, in any situation like that, no matter who you are, I think that, you know, it's not, people are human beings and they make mistakes and they, you know, it's not about potentially making the mistake. You know, nobody's perfect. We, you have to acknowledge that first of all, it's about how you respond to that and how you respond to, um, those adversities, those barriers, those, um, defining moments that really continues to determine who you are as a person. And I think that, you know, you obviously have turned all of this into something positive. And I will tell you that the adversity that you've been through and the ability to kind of grit your teeth and get through it and actually be a positive role model for folks is something to be admired. And it's, you know, one of the, I would have done the podcast anyway, but, you know, just because uh, I enjoy talking to you. But the other part, but but the other part is, is that I really wanted to do the podcast because uh, you're a shining example of what it really means to um, be able to move through some really tough stuff, and and at the end of the day, look in the mirror and say, hey, you know what? I'm still standing. I'm still on two feet, and I'm still making it happen. And it's all that that whole uh, resilience and perseverance through adversity piece because there is another side. There That's is. Right. It doesn't matter how hard it gets. It doesn't matter. You know, um, we can we can talk about some other stuff here in a minute. But, I, yeah. you know, everybody gets to the point where they think that they're the only person that's ever dealt with it. Number one, they're that it's too hard, that it can't be. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. Right. That's and right. Sometimes you sometimes you just have to kind of go, hey, man, today, if I don't do anything else, I'm going to do step one. I'm going to put one foot in front of the other. And I, sure. I got lucky enough got lucky enough to get out of bed this morning and you know what maybe it's i'm gonna go work out i'm gonna be able to put my uh stuff whatever that stuff is away for a while and then i'll start working on it piece by piece but you have to you have to recognize that you know my dad used to tell me and i just heard this again recently i was thinking about it um you know and i don't know if you're religious i I think that you know you and i share a little bit of that but i don't want to bring a lot of religion into it but i'll tell you that i think that you know, well, I'm a God fearing man, so you can say whatever yeah. you, you, know, yeah. you know, God, God doesn't give challenges to people who he doesn't think can handle it. Right. And That's so right. when you start thinking about, Hey, why me? Then I think that you've answered your own question because you recognize that, you know what, maybe you're the only person that could have handled this kind of stuff and successfully dealt with it and moved through it. And, you know, gotten to the point where you feel like you've been able to do something positive with it. So you know, it, it, you have to kind of look at adversity as opportunity and yes, everybody, everybody's going to deal with it. It's not, nobody ever leads, leads an easy, easy life. And, and I don't want to well, proselytize. You, and, you have know. you ever met anyone of character that did have an easy life? I mean, honestly, no. you know, no, I think, I mean, yeah. I think that's exactly right. You, you define a lot of what you become is based on your experiences. And, and I think that, you know, people, that have life easy and never have to experience hardship uh, probably aren't as grounded. They probably aren't as deep and they probably aren't nearly as um, individuals with such character as people who've had to gone through that have have had to gone through hard stuff. And so it's, you know, if it's a, 
divorce, if it's a, a job and you get fired, if it's a loss of a child or a loss of a spouse or a loss of a parent or, or whatever, I, I think that, you know, those events uh, all individually um, matter and they become a part of your uh, story. And then, you know, you, how you deal with each of those, you're probably never prepared to deal with any single one of them at any time, but you have to just keep getting up in the morning and saying, you know what? I woke up this morning. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. God, I appreciate it. And then moving forward and, you know, maybe some days you're going to come back and you're going to go, man, I didn't get anything done today. And then and the next day you're an inch further and the next day you're an inch further. And then you look back after a year and you go, man, I can't believe how far I've come. And so you just have to put yourself, put your head down and say, um, I'm willing to move through this um, because there is a light at at the end of the tunnel, there is another side to this. And so that kind of gets us probably back into the discussion of, you know, after I left TR. Well, and it, before, before we get to that, and I, I definitely want to get there and that, that is a good segue to that, but I couldn't have said anything you just said any better. In fact, a lot of what you just said sounds exactly like what I give to my talks to commands. Now. Um, the only thing I would add to that is that I think people focus on perfection you know, I definitely did. Um, and that, that model of perfection, you know, and, and not allowing yourself to fail, uh, you know, that, that can be a hindrance. So, um, yeah, very very well said, you know, uh, but another thing I would focus in on is just, you know, that model of perfection doesn't exist. We're all human beings, not human doings. And well, absolutely. And I I think that's a, that's a great point. There's, you know, you and I both, subscribe to a similar mentality, you know, I read a lot, um, after we'll, we'll talk about it in a minute, but I read a lot after I kind of went through a really tough, uh, spot as well. And one of the well, authors we can, that I, we can go ahead and get to that if you, if you're ready to yeah, dive there. Well, well, I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about, you know, the idea that at any one point you can only do the best you can do. Right. I mean, that's right. nobody, everybody expects that you're going to be perfect a hundred percent of the time. And that's just not the case. It's not reality. And so, you have to love yourself enough to say, you know what, today I'm going to be the best that I can be. And it may not be the best that you've ever been. It may not be the best that you um, will be, but today I'm going to do the absolute best that I can. And then you start to realize that as long as you're giving your best effort, as long as you're doing everything that you can to move forward, to be a good person, to um, love with an open heart, to do those kinds of things, then you realize that that's all you can do. And, you know, that's right. a, a lot of people pressure themselves to accepting that perfect. your best is, is good enough. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and I think that that's the hard people who don't face adversity, right. That have never dealt with adversity, I think get to the point where um, they don't have a lot of latitude for folks who can't reach that level. And I think that, you know, that's, it's an unrealistic expectation, not only of yourself, but, in other people. And I think that's, that that's exactly when, right. when you start to realize that, you know, people are human beings. You talked about it. I mean, I remember succinctly conversations with you and I, and, you know, I get it. I've, I'm, I'm a human being. I've made mistakes. I, I know that, it, but it doesn't mean that you're any less of a person. As a matter that's of fact, right. it probably means you're more valuable because why? Because it means that you know what that looks like and how, you can move through that adversity. So anyway. Yes, sir. No, that, Hey, <laughs> you gave me goosebumps. That, that was, uh, that was perfect. Yeah. And that's exactly what this project is about. So thank you for sharing that. You uh, got it. So 
we've been kind of beating around the bush, but let's just dive into it. So then you went on to the CEO of the USS Anchorage, uh, Amphibious Command. Uh, you had never done an, an amphib before, right? So this was kind of a another new uh, experience for you as a commanding officer of the uh, LPD, right? Uh, amphibious yep, platform ship. Yeah, never been on one. I'd, I'd never. I'd seen them, obviously, but I'd never been on one until right before I took command of Anchorage, and that was in uh, December of uh, sixteen timeframe, December of two thousand sixteen. Yep. And uh, I took command, and the ship had just come out of a major maintenance uh, overhaul. So they had, in their, de- excuse me, on their deployment in 2015, um, they did a great job. But they had come back, and they had had some problems in the engine room. They had a fire in the engine room, and uh, it had uh, caused some pretty significant damage. And so when they went into the maintenance period, um, I didn't show up until at the end of the maintenance period. The previous CEO had indicated that they had chased gremlins uh, pretty much the entire time. And of course, I think we've got some mutual friends that had uh, been on the ship at that time. And, yes. you know, there are, there yeah. are others that, that you and I both know that um, would tell you the exact same thing. And so um, I took command. Um, we were handed an operational schedule that was um, just, I, I couldn't believe the uh, pace at which the ship was expected to operate, having just come out of a major maintenance overhaul and probably at about 85% manning, 80% manning across the ship. I was just, I was floored because I had never seen that as an operations officer, as an XO, as a CO of a squadron. I had never been put in a position to um, push quite so hard as the operational schedule for Anchorage looked like at that time. And so um, I made it a point, you know, very early on, um, you know, with the department heads and also with my leadership um, going up the chain of command that I was very concerned about the pace and the schedule and the operational requirements of the ship after having had um, there was there was some maintenance that was deferred um, from the shipyard as well. So not all the maintenance had been completed that was scheduled to have been completed. I'm sure it was based on cost and time overruns and those kinds of things. But, um, you know, I won't speak to specifics on that here but the but the point is is that we got uh, a little bit less of a product than we expected plus we were significantly undermanned with a very overbearing operational schedule and so that's a I common a pretty... that's a common story though unfortunately so well right and i you know so knowing that that's a common story um not only did i understand that that was probably not going to change but i also tried to make it as clear to my boss as I could, that I, I was very concerned about it. Yeah. And so, yeah. um, so we started into our abbreviated workup schedule. Um, and then very quickly I was told that we were going to do a, a three month deployment, um, that summer. So with only about five and a half to six months of training after a year long maintenance period, I was told that we were going to go do a three month, um, mini deployment to, for an exclusive economic zone patrol, in uh, in and near Fiji. And so um, I said, well, you know, that's interesting because we were struggling. The engineering plant, the engineers, the engineering department um, were struggling mightily with trying to keep up with the material condition of the ship. And oh, by the way, uh, meeting all of our check marks in support of being able to do that three month mini deployment. So right. you, know, you have a work, you have a workup schedule. Uh, the afloat training group comes on board. 
they evaluate you against a set of standards and we were just, we were just not meeting it. And it wasn't for lack of trying, quite honestly. Uh, I had a crew that was willing to give everything that they had. I think that there were in retrospect, there was probably a little bit of that shipyard mentality uh, still somewhat pervasive throughout the ship. But I think that once we, once we kind of got underway and we kind of knew what our goals were, um, those guys were working their tails off and I couldn't have asked any more from them without probably breaking them in half. And so sure. um, I was, I was very conscious of that because I, I knew that I couldn't, we couldn't push to the point of breaking. And uh, I've told my leadership multiple times that I was very concerned about it. And we um, are, we're going to be very lucky if we didn't uh, hurt somebody or break something. And so fast forward now to continuing to, um, work that extremely, uh, stringent schedule, uh, March timeframe, late March timeframe of 2017. Uh, we had gotten underway for a four day underway, uh, pulled out on a Monday morning, pulled in on a Thursday afternoon. Uh, it was beautiful Thursday afternoon. I can remember it like it was yesterday because it was the first time after having been out and back probably just in the short time that I'd been the skipper now. So I took command in mid December. This is the end of March. So it's just now what, three months. Right. Um, it was the first time I was really feeling confident with, uh, without the pilot, um, making the corrections, getting that ship in and out. This is 26,000 ton ship, um, getting it in and out of port and, uh, and really feeling good with what was going on around San Diego, 32nd street right. at the pier there. And so, you know, I had and, a lot of large, let me, uh, just so for people that don't understand that, you know, entering a ship into port, um, you know, there's a, a, we set restricted maneuvering doctrine, which means you're going to, you know, you're going to allow the equipment to fail before you um, basically lose control of the ship, right? Uh, a pilot comes on board, which is a, an expert in whatever harbor you're pulling into. Uh, and so it's, it's a big deal. Like it's not just at sea steaming, you know, so uh, just to kind of help people out with what you're explaining. Yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. You, you started to feel to get... comfortable without all of the, even though it's a very stressful environment to pull in and out of port, you know, you were starting to feel like you guys had it, had it squared away. Right. And yeah. so I had a, I had a very young crew. I had a bunch of uh, ensigns and Lieutenant JGs who were um, a- obtaining their qualifications to become officers of the deck. I had very few qualified officers of the deck that were still with the ship after having gone through that maintenance period. So right. the XO, the XO was a Lieutenant commander. Um, he was, uh, the, the most competent and senior surface warfare officer on board the ship. And, uh, so I learned a lot from him obviously, because I had very little, uh, LPD ship handling time, sure. but you know, I, I had handled the, the aircraft carrier alongside. It's just that I had never been on the bridge and responsible when we were pulling it into port or out of port. Um, it's a different ballgame when, when yeah, it's yeah, all yeah. on you. That's right. right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But it, but here, just a testimonial to the how fact the a fact that the um, schedule was so busy. Um, you know that was it was interesting because we were um, we'd gone in and out so often that you know it was only three months and I was feeling very proficient at what we were doing. So anyway, so pull it in on a pull into port and shut down yep. and. Yep. So we pulled in uh, normal routine shutdown. Uh, I got off the ship. We probably pulled in around three, three thirty. I got off the ship around four thirty, I think. And I had given the crew, other than duty section, the day off on Friday because I, well, the, we were pushing really, really hard. 
and I was burning them out. I could tell. And I said, you know what? We're not going to be able to maintain this pace. I got to give them some time off. So everybody but duty section came in or excuse me, everybody but duty section was off on Friday. Uh, I was with the XO. We were actually uh, out shooting, which I enjoy. And uh, I got a phone call from the ship that said um, that the uh, lube oil pumps that provide lubrication oil to the reduction gears had been secured. Those pumps had been turned off during the shutdown. And what that really means is, is that a loss of lubricating oil to gears that are turning is a bad thing. Um, And so uh, at that point, when I received the phone call, I was, (laughs) I'll be honest with you, um, my entire career flashed before my eyes because I knew, I knew what that meant. Um, I knew that it meant that I was probably out of a job. Uh, I was probably no longer going to be in consideration for, the opportunity to be a carrier skipper or potentially continue on to the, to the flag ranks. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So I, at that point, um, so I started asking all the questions that, you know, CEOs typically do, Hey, what happened? How did it happen? Is anybody hurt? Thank God nobody got hurt. Okay. Got it. Um, so, you know, I had a couple watch standers that uh, felt like they were doing the wrong thing, but they picked up the wrong checklist. Um, there was certainly, um, some, procedural compliance issues uh, on board the ship and engineering at that point, because I had an, uh, an engineering duty officer who allowed a non-qualified under instruct to um, proceed along with the checklist on his own without being qualified to do so. I had an under instruct who was not qualified to do it. Uh, didn't ask any questions, just picked up the checklist and proceeded to do what he thought was okay. And ultimately, um, it cost me my job because uh, I was relieved in the May timeframe uh, after a very extensive investigation um, that uh, originally I was charged with uh, dereliction of duty, um, which of course um, never came to pass because again, I think when you, when you look at this thing uh, in the big picture, um, these were choices that were made by a couple individuals. Uh, they weren't, the Navy would tell you that they were systemic problems on board the ship. I would tell you that that is absolutely false. Right. Um, that I was working every day to ensure that people were leading with integrity and that procedural compliance was a, absolutely a part of what we did. Uh, well, in the aviation happened. community, procedural compliance is, I mean, it's, it's tighter than any other community. <laughs> or maybe, yeah, the, you maybe the nuclear field as well. But Well, uh, right. And so, so they, didn't, you know, they didn't have an opportunity really to um, – make the decision for the individuals that did what they did. And once that happened, it it really didn't matter what happened next. The, I was already, (laughs) what I didn't know at the time was I was already most likely out of a job. Um, So it ended up, I was relieved. The XO was relieved. The chief engineer was relieved. The main propulsion assistant was relieved and the engineering master chief was relieved. Um, And I think that, the Navy's version is, is the rampant procedural compliance problems throughout the ship. Um, that's hard for me to accept. I was a skipper. I know better than anybody what the issues were on board that ship. And I will tell you that sometimes, uh, bad things happen to good people. Um, we, we were, we were not in a position to succeed. And ultimately even, um, by warning the superiors that I had, uh, I think that fell on deaf ears and ultimately, it, uh, it cost me my job. So, of course, now you work through uh, all the issues that come along with having served for 
25 years, I think, at that point, and then recognizing the next day that uh, I was number one under investigation and number two probably out of a job. And so, and um, also, also during this time, you had a death in the family, right? I did, yeah. So we were, it was, uh, that was late March when the incident occurred at the end of April. Um, my sister passed away uh, under uh, not, not such great circumstances. Mm-hmm. Um, and so during the course of the investigation, which now I'm trying to have to figure out how to deal with the dereliction of duty charge after having served honorably for God knows how many years, you know, I'm now I'm facing a no kidding charge uh, article out of the UCMJ charge. And I was like, it, I could, it was hard to believe number one. And then number two, uh, having to compartmentalize and deal with uh, my sister's death as well. So, and for people, um, people that don't understand that, you know, basically he's going to go, or you were going to go to like a, a military court, you know, to, to prove that, you know, you should be able to stay in the Navy pending that charge. Right. right? Well, right. So this originally, I thought that the idea was that they were going to charge me and potentially send me to a court martial um, for, for dereliction of duty. Um, Thankfully, uh, I think either cooler heads or the facts didn't support that, which I would tell you that I know the facts didn't support that. And subsequently those charges were dismissed. Um, there was never an article 32 hearing or any of that kind of stuff. No, you know, none of that, but I had to fight for, um, I was detached for, for cause, um, that had to go through the Bureau of Naval Personnel. They had to accept it which they did in November timeframe of 2017. And then because I had given so much to the Navy and I felt like, um, (laughs) I honestly, I felt like, um, that I wasn't getting anything in return that it was like, I couldn't believe that I had given so much to an organization that felt so uh, that gave so little back to me in the event of, you know, this kind of stuff happening. I decided that I wanted to retire immediately because I made that choice uh, because I made that choice within two years of that detachment for cause being um, approved by the Bureau. Then I had to go to a board of inquiry to be able to retire as an 06. Now, I will say that to uh, the leadership's credit, um, I was not required to show cause when I was detached. And show cause is a requirement to say, why should the Navy keep you in the Navy? And so in the letter that was written for my detachment for cause to the Bureau, the individual that relieved me, who was the three-star in charge of, the three-star admiral in charge of um, surface forces in Coronado, Um, wrote in there, he said, no show cause is required. Now, the chief of naval personnel or anybody could have said, we're going to make you show cause anyway, but they decided decided not to. I'm familiar with that process. Yeah. Yeah. So, (laughs) yeah, I mean, it's just, it's maddening sometimes to think about how the military justice system works, but. Well, um, so I I just, I don't want to cut you short, but I only have just a few minutes left, but uh, I would be remiss if I didn't get to where you are now. So, uh, got out of the Navy, you were able to retain the, you know, the 06, uh, rank. And uh-huh. then, and then tell us, I, I literally have about four minutes. Um, yeah, yeah. I would just love for everybody to see the light at the end of the tunnel, even though you went through all that adversity, uh, and all that stress. And I'm very familiar with that pressure cooker of stress. Um, but tell us a little bit about, you know, the light at the end of the tunnel and what you're doing now, uh, you know, and your transition. 
Yeah. So the transition, you know, everybody tells you that the transition from the military to the civilian world is going to be um, as easy as you make it, right? A lot of preparation helps you out along the way. I was still probably in a little bit of denial that I had to actually do this, had to get out of the Navy. Um, so I started slowly, um, interviewed a couple different places, went to a career conference in San Diego uh, where I had submitted my resume. So um, I pushed my resume out to a couple companies, you know, the big four, uh, Apple, Facebook, Google, and Amazon, and uh, was fortunate enough to get an, a couple interviews. I interviewed with Facebook down in San Francisco. Um, I interviewed with Amazon in uh, San Diego, and then again in Charlotte, North Carolina. And I got a great offer from Amazon. Um, I started working with Amazon in January. So Went on terminal leave from the Navy in September of 2018, actually officially retired on the 1st of December, 30th of November of 2018, and then uh, spent a month at home. Um, well, a couple more than a month, but a month as a retired guy and then uh, jumped on with Amazon and now working as a, an operations manager in the fulfillment center business, uh, which is, you know, the core business of Amazon. Um, you know, you order a package it may come through my fulfillment center and I may send it out to you. But um, the bottom line is, is that, you know, a great opportunity now to leverage all those leadership experiences and uh, there is life on the other side. So absolutely interesting to think about um, where I've been and where I am and that, you know, that whole moving through adversity and, you know, it's great. I mean, I love it. I'm in Denver, Colorado right now. I'm going through some training, but uh, I love the company. It's exciting. Um, I'm glad I did it. Uh, I wouldn't have probably done it as well had I stayed around in the Navy for a couple more years. Right. So here I am making it, uh, making it happen. And I'm in a program called Military Pathways, which is uh, an interesting program inside of Amazon. Um, very select few folks. You know, Amazon has about 650,000 employees worldwide. I think they only have about 110, 120 military pathways total in the entire organization. So very fortunate to have gotten pulled into that program and, uh, and learning a lot, uh, very technical, but uh, really getting an opportunity to use some of my leadership experience in the Navy. So, Well, hey, Jenny, I just – I really uh, had a few other questions, but I'm out of time. Um, maybe I'll have you back on uh, to talk about some books and some stuff that's helped you, uh, you know, kind of transition. I know if we're going to name one book that we uh, like in common, it's definitely The Four Agreements, right? Uh, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you can read that with a completely different perspective after having gone through uh, some heartbreak or uh, and some adversity. And I think if you really, those words will resonate with you, I guarantee it. That's right. Well, hey, again, um, from the bottom of my heart, <laughs> like, I am very grateful for your time this evening. Uh, I know you're very busy uh, and I really appreciate your message. I think that's going to resonate with a lot of people and, and help some people out. So, uh, you know, consider this your good deed of the year. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Uh, so yeah. I, I appreciate your service. Um, and, and I really, you know, like I said, I, from the most humble place, I can even say it, just extend a, a very warm uh, and gracious thank you. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate you uh, thinking enough of me to have me on and, um, hopefully it helps out wherever it can. So thanks again. And, uh, I, I look forward to seeing you doing great stuff across the fleet and whatever you do next. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you for your time. You, you got it, man. All right. Out here. Take care.